I want to ask you at this time to be turning in your Bibles to the book of Jude. This little old book tucked in right before the book of Revelation, right at the end of our Bibles. I've really enjoyed going through the book of Jude together. If you've been here the past three weeks, I probably should start by applauding you for your tenacity and showing back up and, uh, and going through this with me. I've had a good time. Uh, the Lord has really blessed uh, my personal study and the reading of the book of Jude, and I hope he has done the same with you. If you're joining us, maybe visiting with us this morning, this is our fourth and our final study of the book of Jude. Jude says a lot in these 25 verses, yet he drives home for us really a call to the Christian and a warning to the unbeliever. The warning that if you are, as we're going to see this morning, that if you are devoid of the Spirit, that if you are without the Spirit of God, then you will be exposed, that we looked at last week, that you will be exposed, your thoughts, your actions, your deeds, the deeds of the ungodly will be made known for what they are. It will be obvious to all. The ungodly will understand what it is that they have done compared to the glory of God. In verse 1, Jude says, I'm writing this to all of you who are called, who are beloved in God the Father, and who are kept for Jesus Christ. You're kept by Christ, and you've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus by God himself. That's what Jude is getting at. He says, you've been entrusted. This. I wanted to write to you. I wanted to write about our common salvation. He's not lessening what salvation is. By calling it common, he's reminding us that salvation that has been made available to all men through Jesus Christ, it belongs to equally to all those who call upon the name of Jesus. On all those who believe this salvation, it belongs to equally. So he encourages us to continually come to God with our sin to humbly come before God with our sins so that God can grant us mercy, peace, and love that we looked at. But this mercy, this peace, and this love, it's not added to us. We looked at how interesting it is that God says it is multiplied to you, meaning it is abundantly poured out to us in ways in which we can't even imagine. So therefore, this great God that we serve, this great God that we love, this faith that we have, he says it's worth contending for. Remember, we talked about the contention that we have. We're contending for the faith. Our gloves are up. We're in the ring. We're fighting for the faith. And it's, it's kind of a reminder to, to be alert. And we looked at this, and I've kind of mentioned each week, but it's, it's very important that we understand that Jude is writing. He's writing to an early church community. He's, he's writing to an early church plant, if you will. He's writing to this small congregation and reminding them, saying, hey, this salvation, this worth contending for, he says, the reason I'm writing to you about this is because there are those who have crept in. And they've crept in unnoticed. Meaning they've come with the right credentials. They have, all the, they have a great resume. They've got all the right credentials. But they've crept in. So you, they've come unnoticed into your church. And they are actually perverting the grace of God. They are actually distorting the message of the gospel. The gospel that they're proclaiming to you, the gospel that they are advertising, he says, is actually no gospel at all. Because if we pervert the grace of our God, it leads us to believe that we have license, 
that we have freedom to continue in our sin, yet, as we're going to see today, this morning, that we are to persevere because we are preserved and kept by Jesus. Week two, we had a little history lesson. We saw that the ungodly, as I've already mentioned, the ungodly and their sin will be dealt with by God. He said it is by their licentiousness, it is by this perversion of the grace of God, this, this false teaching, this false gospel, it is because of that that they go on sinning, they continue to live their lives very inappropriately with no conviction whatsoever. And it is by their fruits, it's by that sort of living, Jude says that you will know them. So God is saying to us, be ever so discerning about those who teach. He says, be discerning about those who preach, who teach Sunday school, who lead your small group or your life group. Be very discerning about the sermons that you listen to on the radio. Be very discerning about the sermons that you download off the Internet and put on your iPod to listen as you travel. Be discerning about the books that we read. When we read William Young's The Shack, we need to be very careful how he portrays the Trinity. How does he say that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit actually work together? How does that relationship work? So when we read these books, which we can take great things from, and the Lord can use and bless that, he says, know what you believe and know why you believe it. Not because some very dynamic speaker got up and kind of gave you the wow factor. You know, some guy came up, got up in front of you, and he can talk in front of people, and he's very calm, he's cool, he's relaxed, and everything he says sounds great. Well, what's our tendency? Our tendency when things sound great, especially, as Jude is telling us, especially when those things end up kind of benefiting us, what do we do? We believe it because we want to believe that. We want to believe that that is how our relationship with our God works. But we live in a day, we live in an age where the world teaches many, what some of us would call many crazy things, but you can find it. God's Word says, but you can find that sort of teaching in the church. And so he's opening our eyes. He's saying, be alert, be discerning of those who teach and who advertise the gospel by the way they wish their lives. Then last week, we saw that God dealt with the reality, not the possibility, but the reality of a real and eternal hell. We looked at the, uh, the return of Jesus. What is the purpose of His return? We looked at the purpose of this judgment, and that God's judgment at His return is not to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. If you remember, I, I really enjoyed this, and I had some of you respond to me this week about this, but it was that, the, the little illustration of, please, God, please, I get it now. I get it, you know, crying out from hell. I'm so sorry, you know, and God looks down and goes, it's too late. You know, you must suffer. You had your chance. That's not at all what God's judgment is about. Christ's return is not to determine who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. People in hell are not crying out to God saying, I'm so sorry for what I've done. Now the purpose of the return of Christ as presented here in the book of Judas to display the glory of God for all the world that has ever lived so that when someone walks into a movie theater or somebody walks into an establishment in Tuscaloosa all in the same week, that you and I can have confidence 
in our God that He will remedy what sin has done in our lives. That all the havoc that the sin and the consequences of our sin, all the havoc that it's wreaked in our lives, that we can have confidence in our God to turn to Him, to look to our God to remedy what sin has done in our lives. So we've basically, up to this point, up to verse 17 in the book of Jude, we've been told how to beware of false teaching. But we haven't been told how to prepare for false teaching. So this morning, we're actually going to be shown, God is going to tell us how to not only beware of false teaching, to beware of a false gospel, but He is going to encourage us by telling us how to prepare for a false teaching, how to prepare for a false gospel. I want to ask you to stand. We stand each week out of reverence for God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I want to read from Jude. I'm going to begin in verse 17. I'm going to read all the way through 25. We have to read this beautiful doxology that we have in 24, 25. We're going to focus on 17 through 23 for our purposes this morning. Hear God's word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, but you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you as blameless before the presence of his glory, With great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority for all time and now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. And as you do, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are awestruck before your word to know that the God of creation is speaking to us. But with all the distractions that we have in our lives, distractions even of microphones not working during a service, or we're distracted by so much going on, would we focus on you this morning? Well, with all the things we have going on, whether it's in our families, with our children, with our jobs, whatever it is, that, Lord, during the week we just can't seem to get our minds off of it. Lord, during this time, would you just, would you give us a peace? Would you give us an understanding that we are in the presence of our God, that you desire to know us, to love us, to have us in your family in ways that you can bless us beyond measure. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. In the beautiful name of Jesus, amen. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to focus on three things. It's a good old three-point sermon. Here we go. God's Word is encouraging us to remember... To bear in mind, he's calling us to remember, to develop a sure foundation, 
And he's also encouraging us to show mercy. Here's a good way to sum that up. He's asking us, he's encouraging us to remember, to grow, and to show. Remember, grow, and show. So first off, what is Jude calling us to remember? We just read these, but let's, let's revisit them. Look at verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what predictions? Well, look at verse 18. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. And then verse 19. It is these precisely that are causing the divisions. They're causing, and listen to this kind of paraphrase. This helped me to understand verse 19. It is these precisely that are causing the divisions, the confusion in your church. They are not living for the things of God, but instead for worldly passions and instant gratification that is only temporary at best because they have not the Spirit of God in their lives. So Jude is telling us here that Christians are to remember the various biblical advice and caution regarding false teachers. Turn with me. I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 24. Flip back to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus gave these kinds of warnings actually before His death, resurrection, and ascension. And we get an example of this in Matthew chapter 24, starting with verse 11. Let me read verses 11 through 14 of Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, verse 11. This is Jesus speaking. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. But isn't it interesting that this is Jesus speaking before he's died, before he's been resurrected, before he's ascended and gone back to heaven to be with his Father. So the Lord is actually putting together this idea, this doctrine here of false teaching with the Christian's call to endure, to contend for our faith. This is our way to look to what Jesus has said. It's like, I can't let myself be discouraged when I come upon false teaching. That's why I keep saying that God is wanting to encourage us this morning to remember, to grow, and to show. When you look at the, uh, in the bulletin, if you looked at the title of the sermon, the perseverance and the preservation of those, of the beloved who are in waiting, you may automatically have in your minds something of of maybe what I mean by perseverance. But what I'm really focusing on in our area of perseverance this morning is this enduring, this, this pressing on, this running the race, this not being discouraged, this turning to God, understanding through our remembering what God has already told us that our confidence comes because this is no surprise to God that this has happened even within his church. Because what would happen sometimes is we, we may want to fall into the trap of saying, Jesus has done all this to rescue sinners. He's done all this. He became flesh. He came, he lived, was without sin. He died on the cross. 
He did all that. And now look, even in his own church, a false gospel, false teaching, even within that which he died for, his church, he gave his life for the church. And there's false teaching in the church. That could be very discouraging. But God is saying in his word, I need to motivate and encourage you, not discourage you. Or maybe we'd be scared of falling in the trap or the false teaching itself. We're going to look at that at the end of our section today. That's why our already being kept by Jesus that we read in the first verse of Jude is so important. That our being preserved in Christ and anxiously awaiting His return is really our greatest attack that we have on saying, what's, what's to keep me from being led astray? That's one of our greatest strengths that we have against that attack. Well, turn with me one more time. Let's turn back to Acts verse 20. Turn to Acts, sorry, chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Let me start by reading verse 24. Acts 20 verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So we see... We see this persevering, this enduring, this finishing the race, this finishing the course in which he began in the grace of God. Now look down to verses 28 through 32. Acts 20, verses 28 through 32. says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you. That's strong language, by the way. That's not playing around. He says there will be fierce wolves who will come in among you, not sparing the flock. In other words, not caring about you. Not caring about you. Verse 30, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, distorting the gospel, to draw away the disciples after them, Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So as much as we have spent the past two weeks talking about the ungodly and what they are like and how you shall know them, he still finds important to throw in verse 19 that these are the ones. He's talking about the young guy. He's just saying these, these people, these false teachers. He still feels the need to throw this in there and say, these are the ones who are, what are they doing? They are causing divisions. They're worldly-minded, and they are devoid of the Spirit. Well, first off, they're worldly-minded. They present themselves as super spiritual, but actually they're consumed with the things of this world. That's really what they're truly after, the things of this world. We're also told that these false teachers are devoid of the Spirit. They claim to be filled with the Spirit. They claim to have spiritual powers, yet Jude says, no, they're devoid of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is not in them. If you remember, these false teachers were coming to people and saying, hey, God's been speaking to me in my dreams. I've been given visions. I've been given a special power by God. I've got the special inside, and I've got the inside track 
so that I can now do the work that's actually reserved for God. But we looked back a couple weeks ago that the work that is reserved for God is reserved for God, period. The end. We are to be looking to Him to remedy what sin has done in our lives. But notice especially what He says about them when He says, it is these who cause divisions. See, these people are basically coming up with new ways to see God. And what they're doing with the gospel, what they're doing with the grace of God is actually trying to show the pettiness or the insignificance of the Bible. They want to present themselves as winsome, as so open-minded, as so accepting of everybody, just to win over everybody. I'm so accepting, and the, and the, the Bible is so narrow-minded. If you feel like you're cast out, that you're cut out from what God's Word says, then, then, then come to us. Listen, listen to what God has revealed to me. See, what's happening is, and maybe you've heard this teaching. I've talked with many of you over lunch, over dinners at our house, and we're not going to name names this morning, but some of you have shared with me churches even in our own neighborhood, in our own community, that teach a sort of distorted gospel. This, the Bible's kind of archaic. That the Bible is not culturally relevant. We're open-minded. We take everybody. Well, i got news for you. Not a one of you sitting out here is not a sinner. Not a one of us. No man that ever stands on this stage and preaches to you is not a sinner. The church is full of hypocrites. Talk about being accepting of everybody. I mean, that's full inclusion right there. But so many people want to say the Bible is not culturally relevant, that it's archaic, that it's old, that there are some good things. There, there's some good things. If, if I really want to prove this point, I can go to a few, a few verses, and I can really say that this means this and that, and I can prove my point with the Word of God, but those parts that really aren't up to the time, those things that really aren't up to culture, then, then those things really, you know what, it's outdated. We don't need them anymore. It's okay. Look, we're a lot more open-minded. But that is not what God's Word is telling us. Because what happens is, in order for us to be more culturally relevant, and I love this. When I thought about this this week, I just kind of sat back and I just thought about it. Just being quiet, and I sat there with probably this kind of smirky smile on my face, and I kind of got it. I realized it. In order to be culturally relevant, we have to pervert the grace of God. In order to really be culturally relevant, I have to go against the gospel teaching. I have to distort that gospel because God tells me to live in this world. Where in there did He tell me to be of this world? Where in His Word did He tell me to look to the things of this world and not the things of this kingdom? In order for us to be in our culture and to be so excited, we have to pervert the grace of God. And that's exactly what is happening here. In order for me to continue to live my life inappropriately. Do you remember from verse 8 in Jude, that whole defilement of the flesh? That we must pervert and change the true gospel in order to believe that immorality and the Christian life are okay to hang out with each other. That to continue in my immoral behavior and living the Christian life, that those things are okay. 
But if I don't pervert the grace of God, if I don't change His gospel, guess what His Word tells me? That immorality and the Christian life, they are at odds with each other. That it's a battle. And it's a faith worth contending for. So Jude is saying, don't be surprised, don't be discouraged by the presence of these false teachers. He says, don't forget the Word of God. This is exactly what Jesus told us would happen in Matthew 24. So he says, remember, remember the Word of God. So we're to remember, and now he exhorts us to develop a sure foundation by telling us to grow. But what does he tell us to grow in? Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Now this is a call to build ourselves on the teaching of Scripture, on Bible truth. And this most holy faith here, it doesn't refer to our faith in Christ, but the faith once delivered. He's talking about the truth of the gospel and of God's Word. So Jude is actually calling us to build ourselves up in the Christian life, basing that being built up on what the Bible says and on sound Christian doctrine. So the Christian life is to be built upon the foundation of the authoritative Word of God. So Jude says you want to resist false teaching? You want to resist this sort of teaching? He says you can do this no matter how old you are. And I love this. You can do this no matter how old you are. We're actually starting a new Sunday school class on August 19th in the, for the children, in the children's ministry, some of the older children. We're doing a communicants class. We're going to be talking about the doctrines of our faith. We're going to be talking to these little ones about what is God? What is sin? What about the future? Who is Jesus Christ and His person and His work? How are we supposed to live? We're going to be talking about these things with these little ones in this communicants class. We just had our VBS. We just had our kids camp. And the kids, they learned all sorts of things. They memorized Bible verses. They learned about heaven. They learned that the world around us, that it, it blinds us. It blinds us on the things of heaven. And then we fall off that step that we didn't see. It blinds us, the world around us. So these little ones are learning that God calls me to think of Him, His Word, His love, His grace, His mercy, to always be focusing on the things in the kingdom of heaven. Because we are to desire to grow in the truth of the Christian faith. But next, what does he do? Remember, we're growing here. We've, we've, we've remembered, and now we're growing. We are to remember the Word of God, but we are to grow in grace. He says, you must pray in the Holy Spirit. You and I need the power of God in order to do this. In order to persevere, we must tap into the power of God, and we do that by prayer. So we are to grow in prayer. Matthew Henry said, Those who live without prayer live without God in this world. How to think about that one. I want you to think about that one. Matthew Henry said, Those who live without prayer live without God in this world. And Jude says, You show me a Christian who's without prayer, and I will show you a Christian who is vulnerable to the false teachings in the gospel. So he tells us to grow in prayer, to live in dependence upon God, coming before Him, asking, pleading for His grace and His mercy and His love that has been multiplied to us. And then we're ready for the battle against this false teaching. So we are to grow in prayer. 
Next he says in verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. He's simply asking the question, what does a false teacher have to offer to a Christian who's experiencing the greatness and the love of God? What exactly is it there, false teacher? What is it exactly that you're going to do to to improve my love? What is it exactly that your gospel is going to do to improve my circumstances? Because I've already been made a son. I've already been made a daughter of God. I've already been assured of my salvation. What exactly is your gospel going to offer me to improve any of that? So he's saying we must grow to keep ourselves in the love of God so that we don't fall to this fake sales pitch. Next, we're to grow in hope. Notice he says, finally, and I love this, he says, hope, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Isn't it interesting, though, how he says this? Isn't it interesting how he says that we are to look to the return of Christ? Isn't it interesting that he says we should be waiting anxiously for the return of Christ? That's what he's talking about. Last week we looked at the purpose of the return of Christ, but now he's talking about waiting expectantly for the coming of our Lord, just like John says at the end of Revelation. And I love this. At the end of Revelation we read, we read John saying, Come, Lord Jesus. He says, Come, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come now. And I should be saying that every day, but not just because I have two daughters. And I want him to come before they hit 16. Before they go off to college. I went to college. I can't imagine my daughters in college. But I'm to say, Lord Jesus, come now. Come quickly. That's how we are to live our lives. Expecting the return of Christ. Waiting anxiously for His return. He's talking about this. And it's beautiful how He says to wait anxiously. But why do you think He says this? Why do you think he's pointing out, of all that he's been teaching in the prior verses, in these previous verses, why do you think he's putting it this way? The only way, I'm going to read this, I don't want to get it reversed, I do that sometimes. The only way that you could ever, 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 ever wait for the return of Christ anxiously is if you're waiting for it in the mercy of Jesus Christ because... The second coming is the last thing that anybody would want to hope for if you had not experienced the mercy of God. Think about it that way. That if you are waiting anxiously for the return of Christ, you are waiting, you've been assured you're waiting on God's mercy. Because if you haven't experienced God's love, if you haven't experienced God's mercy, let me go ahead and tell you, that's the last thing you're waiting on. That's the last thing that you are waiting on. So, Jude tells us, Christian, you wait. He says you cultivate that hope and you hold on to it like you've never held on to anything else. He says you hope that Christ is going to remedy what sin has done and all the havoc that it's wreaked in your life. I know probably everybody sitting in this room we all have consequences of our sin. We all experience consequences of the sin of those around us. Sin has its consequences. 
But God is calling us to remember Him, to remember His promises. And His promises tell you, you know what? I am going to remedy. I am going to make new again all this junk that has happened because of the sin that is so rampant in this world, that is so rampant in your lives. He's saying, don't worry. Hope in me and wait anxiously in me. So how do you resist false teaching? How do you resist being led astray? You remember the false prophets and the false gospels are not a surprise to God and His will. You desire to grow in truth, to grow in the love of God, to grow in prayer out of dependence on Him, and you hold on to that hope that you've been given in Christ. Now, I could very easily be done right here and we could stop. And it might be an okay ending of where we've gone and where we've come in the book of Jude. But Jude does something very special right here in these next couple of verses. He's not finished because he wants us to give, he wants to give us a lesson in mercy. He gives us a lesson in mercy and he answers our questions about those that we have. We, we know those that are maybe in a church that teach, maybe in our minds, teach some crazy and unbiblical things. He answers our questions about those who are doubting the gospel. He's, you know, what about those who are maybe doubting the gospel? What about those who've been duped, who've been tricked, who have fallen for that salesperson? They've been duped by a false gospel. Or maybe what about those who seem that they are so far gone that they could never turn back? Quickly, and I'm sorry for my brevity, but very quickly, how do you deal with those that are doubting or maybe are confused by false teaching? They haven't really fully bought into it yet, but they're confused. You feel they're about to? How do you deal with that? Jude says you deal with that very mercifully. You're not to be harsh. You deal with them wisely. How do you deal with them wisely? Because you've been, you've been growing in truth, right? Because you've been remembering. You've been growing. So you're equipped to go to them very wisely and mercifully, and you deal with them compassionately. What about the one who's already been duped by it? They've, they've bought it. They've got a whole lot of stock in it. All their chips are pushed to the middle of the table, and they're banking on all this stuff to bring a mighty return in their lives. Maybe you feel that they've bought something they don't even know or can't fully realize what it is that they are in. How does Jude tell us to deal with them? He says to go urgently and very directly. In verse 23, he says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. They've committed themselves to this teaching. He says you go urgently and you go directly. If you're to save something out of a fire... If something is thrown in a fire, it's thrown in a blaze, and you want to save it, and that means the world to you, you simply walk away, and if I get time tomorrow, I'll come back and check on that fire. No, you snatch it out quickly, urgently, directly. You reach right into the fire, and you pull them out. He's saying you snatch others out of the fire. You do not wait. You go directly, and you go urgently. It is so important that we understand how compassionate we are to be, how accepting that we are to be. But he says, you go urgently and you go directly to that person. What about those who have walked the plank? They got both hands tied behind their back. They got the concrete block and they've, they've stepped off and they're in the water. Looks like there's no hope. 
There's no getting them back up. The second part of verse 23 says, To others show mercy with fear. In other words, have mercy on them and exercise a godly fear. Have pity on them, but don't associate with them to where you become as them. It says, love them, be compassionate to them, but show a godly fear of them. It said, you should be hating their behavior, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. You show mercy based on the mercy that you've been shown by God. So when you're with this person, when you're loving on this coworker, when maybe you're, you're loving on this family member, your friend from high school from years ago, or whoever it is that you love so dearly, when you're dealing with this person that seems like they are so far gone, you hate their behavior. You hate what they've been doing. But you show mercy on them based off the mercy that you have been shown by God. One way in which we can test our understanding of God's mercy toward us is how we respond to others in mercy. What's our usual response to the homeless guy on the side of the street begging? What's your usual response to the drug or the alcohol addict? How do we usually respond to our family member or our church member who's just so doggone hard to get along with? How do we typically respond to that person? Is it based off the mercy that you've been shown in God? Because when I get irritated, when I get all discouraged, and I get kind of red in the face, and I get frustrated, I'm not acting towards that person based off the mercy that I have been given in God. And I love the verse. When, when I start thinking about my understanding of God's mercy towards me and the way that I treat those around me, I love the verse, and I just think about he who is without sin. Please pick up a stone and throw it. I don't think any of us in this room would be holding a stone in our hands. That really changes my judgmentalism. i got to tell you, it really does. You're to be a messenger of God's mercy to those around us. And that's what we've seen through Jude, to be on our guard to be alert, to be on our guard against false teaching, against a gospel that has been distorted, that has been perverted, that is using the grace of our Savior to live any way they want to without conviction. We are to be on guard. We are to remember God's Word, what it has said. We are to grow in truth, in mercy, and in prayer, and to show that mercy that we've been given by God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, it tells us some pretty tough things sometimes. Well, just because it's tough doesn't mean that it's not true. So Lord, I pray that you would, Lord, that you would just remind us of the truthfulness of your word. Lord, and I just pray for everyone here. I pray for those who are struggling. I pray for those who maybe are, are in a time of peace. Lord, that we would not put our gloves down, but we would hold our gloves up, that we would be alert, that we would be discerning of the teaching of the gospel as it's being advertised in the world around us and even within our own churches. And we thank you for your love and your mercy that you multiply to us, to us the undeserving, to us the ungodly. 
the Lord. In the end, all those who call and believe upon the name of Jesus are reckoned righteous. So will we hold on to that? Will we hope in that? Would we wait anxiously for your return and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come now, we pray. Amen.